So this past weekend, my son Emmett and I headed up to L.A. to catch a new museum experience called Tupac Shakur, Wake Me When I'm Free. And it's basically all sorts of artifacts from the life and times of perhaps my all-time favorite artist. And the thing that stuck out, like really stuck out, were the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of notepads and spiral notebooks that Tupac went through. All his life, he was writing and writing. And not just lyrics, poems, observations, thoughts, plans. And it made me think that maybe we'd all be better served setting aside our phones every so often, breaking out a notepad, looking around, and just writing. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Mike Sielski, the Philadelphia Inquirer sports columnist and author of a terrific new book, The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. This is episode number 245. Let's sling some in. Dad, your podcast sucks. And you're selling vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Mike. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. Make me feel good about myself, Mike. Today, I'm in Southern California and... It's probably going to be mid sixties. And I feel like that's going to be a little cold. What are you, what are you looking at there in Philly? <laughs> we're looking at 30 if we're lucky and uh, kind of overcast and no desire at all to go outside. I feel good about myself. All right. Um, I'm here for you, Jeff. Thank you. I appreciate that. So you're the author of the rise Kobe Bryant and the pursuit of immortality. It came out recently earlier this month. It's a great freaking book. When I came out with my book, the three ring circus book about the Lakers, people said, Oh, Kobe Bryant. This is a far, far, far better explanation of Kobe Bryant than anything I came up with. It's just great. And I say that because I'm going to lead you into something. I don't think your book is selling as well as it's like, I think your book should be number one right now on Amazon. I just think your book should be fucking read by, I think it's that good. And I look at the sales and I think, oh, this is selling well, but I think it should be selling better. And I've been at your place when the book comes out and you're like, how's this going? How's this going? Are you thinking the same thing? Or are you like, oh, everything's going great. And I'm misreading this a little bit. No, I'm kind of thinking the same thing, Jeff. I have to be brutally honest here. Um, the the very excellent and kind part of this is that, generally speaking, people who have read the book reacted the same way you did, um, which is very positively, and I'm very, very grateful for that. But look, I listen to your podcast all the time, and I've heard you talk about checking the Amazon rankings, and I do the same thing a couple of times a day. And I have to confess, there's a part of me that's going, oh, geez, this is Kobe. Like, you know, I, I thought the appeal would catch on more quickly than I hope it eventually will, to put it that way. It's incredibly hard. Promoting a book, it's so out of your control that it's really, and I, so I'm interested, actually, what has the process been like for you before we get into the book? So it's been a combination of, Arrangements made by my publisher, St. Martin's Press, you know, uh, interviews that they've set up, podcasts that they had set up, and interviews that I've set up on my own. You know, I came to them, you, again, you, you're familiar with the process. So for the benefit of your listeners, you know, months out of publication, I came to them with a list of media people who I thought I, who I knew for, you know, for certainty, or who I thought would have me on their podcast to talk about the book or would write a column about the book or all those sorts of things. So since the 11th came around, it's just been every day, there's been at least one, 
as many as six or seven interviews on a podcast, on a radio show, on a TV show, something like that. And we're recording this the day before the two-year mark of Kobe's death. And so tomorrow is going to be a busy day. I'm going to be on six or seven different things talking about the book. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's just that. It's that combination of like taking what the publisher sets up and then trying to augment that as best you can. So I've known Adrian Wojnarowski for a long time. He was gracious enough to have me on his podcast and he tweeted about the book. I've known Mike Vaccaro a long time and he mentioned it, the book in his column. So I'm trying to mine those relationships as much as I can in addition to hoping that the PR group for the publisher can set some things up. Have you figured out at all in any way, shape or form what works? I have absolutely no idea. I have I have no clue. Um, I know you had Chris Herring, who's my friend and former co-worker from The Wall Street Journal. You had him on last week and he told that great anecdote about Spike Lee. And, uh, you know, I, that's in, that's amazing. That's incredible. My God, good for Chris. That's awesome. I, I don't know. I, I, the metaphor I keep coming up with is like you're trying to light a lighter. And it won't spark. You like, and you're just looking for that one spark that gets the flame lit. And um, I don't know. I'm, maybe it's out there yet. I hope so. I've said this a million times on this show. It really is fascinating how Spike Lee posting something about your book on Instagram a million times more valuable than Sports Illustrated excerpting it or ESPN.com excerpt. Like everything has been turned up on its head over the past yeah. five or six years. It's and, and I've heard you talk about that. And that is why... I mailed an autographed copy of the book to Jonah Hill because I know that Jonah is a big Lakers fan. Um, and without getting into too much detail, I have some connections to some people who know him. And so my hope is, okay, maybe he'll post about it on Instagram or Twitter. And that would be a help. All right. What else have you done? Like, what do you, I love that stuff. I love the creative, like this is what I'm going to try doing. What else have you tried doing? Ah, uh, tried doing. Let me think. Um, I mean, I've, I, I did a, uh, I don't know, I hosted kind of something like this, um, an event for a local bookstore, a virtual signing for James Patterson and Mike Lupica, who co-authored a novel that's shooting up the bestseller lists. I then mailed copy, autographed copies of the book to James Patterson and Mike Lupica. Um, I'm having an event tomorrow uh, in the town where I live in Doylestown in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, at a vintage t-shirt shop, which is very, very popular in the area uh, in the hopes that that will draw people in. And basically, uh, you know, I'm being shameless about tweeting about this, posting about it on Facebook, posting about it on Instagram, you know, being totally upfront, like, look, I want to sell as many copies as I can. I want people to read the book, tell your friends, do whatever you have to do. You know, I'm doing whatever I have to do to get the word out there just on the off chance that like, yeah, I may annoy everybody who follows me on Twitter, but maybe I'll reach that one person who reads it and suggests it to the other person and whisper down the lane. And before you know it, we're on the New York Times bestseller list. If your book doesn't sell as well as you want it to, are you ultimately okay? Like you wrote a great book. This really is something I think about all the time. Like, can you take satisfaction in, I wrote a great book and it sold 12,000 copies? I am really, 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 really trying. And so far, I'm kind of proud of myself <laughs> for saying exactly what you just said. Like, I feel like I wrote a great book. And if it doesn't get sold to the degree that I want it to, I think I'll be okay with that. I do. Um, in part because I feel like um, it will still allow me to keep writing other books. Um, and that's what I want to do. I want to continue being able to do projects like this. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've, thought about it. And I've thought about, you know, these books sell really well, but would I have wanted to write that book? 
And I some often say to myself, well, no, you know, no specific example, just, you know, thinking about it in those terms. I'm really happy with the final product. It's not perfect by any stretch, but I'm happy with how it turned out. And as long as the people who I trust and care about and who know good writing and good books read it and say it's good, I think I'll be cool with that. I do think it's interesting. A lot of people who go into writing and, and writing books, I don't think they're aware of the fact. I think you clearly are. There's this idea, well, they're going to give me a team of publicists and they're going to line up a million things. And from my experience, especially of late, it's who do you know? Can you get them on your podcast? Can you get like you are your own publicist more than a publicist is your publicist. You, you agree? I completely agree. Um, you know, as I said, I got on Woj's podcast. That was from our friendship over the better part of two decades. I got on two podcasts in Sports Illustrated, one with Howard Beck, one with John Gonzalez. Gons and I have been friends for a quarter century. Howard and I have known each other professionally. Um, the inroads that I'm making are coming mostly from me. Now, that doesn't mean that the same Arns people aren't working hard and haven't gotten me some good, some good, really good pub, but yeah, the idea to somebody who's unfamiliar with the process, the idea that you just sit back and let the PR people set everything up for you and you just go on this whirlwind book tour and Oprah's there opening the door waiting for you, that does not happen. So you have not seen Oprah opening a door waiting for you? Not yet. I keep my fingers crossed though, Jeff. Wait, so you mentioned you will be doing certain, you'll be promoting it on the anniversary of his passing. Um, and it's really sort of unique. I don't know if tap dance is the right word, but it's a solemn, solemn day. It's also a very good opportunity to sell books. In fact, the entire subject of the book is a very solemn book because it's this guy who died somewhat recently. Is there any awkwardness, discomfort, sort of steps you have to take or do take to make sure you're not coming off like P.T. Barnum and tap dancing on the grave of someone? Is that something to be aware of at all? Absolutely. You don't want to come off as slimy and opportunistic, but the fact that reality is reality. And the fact is, the anniversary of his death is a reason to get people thinking and talking about Kobe. Um, and you want, I want an opportunity to do that. I'm going to approach those interviews with the proper amount of gravity and respect and, you know, all those things, all those qualities to make it appropriate for the solemnity of the situation and the anniversary. But it is what it is. I want to be out there talking about Kobe Bryant on a day when everybody is thinking about Kobe Bryant. All right. So Kobe Bryant dies two years ago. You're a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. You're kind of living your life. When do you first think, I don't know, Kobe Bryant, sort of origin biography, not a bad idea? Probably about a month or two after his death. Um, I wrote about a half dozen to a dozen columns about him in the aftermath of his passing. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, because he joined the Lakers when he was so young, it feels like he grew up before the entire world like before everybody's eyes. Everybody was familiar with his career with the Lakers, the really good things, the really not so good things. And having grown up and worked in the Philadelphia area for as long as I had, I knew that there was this other story that was really well known in our area, but probably not as well known to the country and the world at large. And I thought that's a story that I can tell and I can tell well. So that kind of got me thinking. And to kind of tie this to the remarkably gracious and generous and wonderful blurb that you gave me, which is on the cover of the book, uh, which says every superhero needs an origin story. I started thinking of it in terms of I want to do Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. 
that was that was the elevator pitch I had for the book. And I know how fraught that is. You know, the implication is that Kobe's a superhero in this book. I tried very hard not to paint him as a superhero in any regard, um, but that's kind of how it all came to be. All right. So how hard was the sell? How much work did you have to do to sell the book? How many how, did you have a lot of offers? Was it hard? Or was it easy? It was pretty easy. Um, I had just hired a new agent, Susan Canavan at Waxman Literary, who's been awesome. And, um, I, you know, we worked on the proposal for a while, got it exactly to where we wanted it, and then sent the proposal out and we got a really good offer kind of right away. And we're able to work with St. Martin's to get it to where we were happy and they were happy and away we went. It's hard for me to imagine some uh, publishing house that doesn't have any knowledge in sports thinking, yeah, I don't know. Kobe Bryant book about his origin, which has never been done before. And by the way, he's iconic. And he died two years ago. I don't really want that. Like it, it actually is a perfect subject, I have to say. You know what, though, Jeff, there was some pushback from some publishers, um, you know, I think because of the the sexual assault charges uh, against him in 2003 and 2004. I think there was some hesitation there that, you know, what kind of book are we writing about him? Are we going to, is the writer going to God him up, so to speak, and and all of that? So I was a little surprised by that. I kind of thought along the lines that you did, but, um, you know, fortunately, say Martin's, you know, like the idea. So when my book came out, my book came out shortly after Kobe died. And I didn't get a ton of backlash, but there, there was some, you know, oh, you're just trying to take advantage of this guy and you're trying to take advantage of his death. You're in a totally different place because you are writing after he dies. And you're approaching all these people from his life, from his past life. Were you concerned at all about these people saying, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, why am I going to, He, you know, this is disgusting or this is disturbing. Were you worried about that? And did you encounter that at all? I was worried about it. I didn't encounter anyone who framed their reluctance to talk to me in those terms. I just got people who said, yeah, I'm not going to talk to you or wouldn't return my phone calls or emails or things like that. And I think the circumstances and the nature of my book was different and kind of lent itself to not to people not pushing back in that regard, because I was focusing exclusively on a time in his life that the people who were around him at that time felt like hadn't been covered in the depth and the detail that they wanted. So some people, a number of people were very eager to talk to me because they felt like, hey, there, there are these sides of Kobe that we knew really well that nobody really knows about and that they were important to him and they were important to us. And the fact that you, Mike, want to explore them is great. It will give us a chance to kind of tell his story in the way that we felt like we knew him and that hasn't been presented before. So for example, I had never known this until I started the, the research. Kobe was a member of the student voice at Lower Marion, the black student union organization at Lower Marion High School. I had no idea about this. I had never seen this reported anywhere. I don't think it was reported anywhere. But the, the classmates and friends of his who knew him through that organization primarily were really eager to talk to me because that was their experience with Kobe. And they felt like that, was, that hadn't been rendered or represented well enough in all the things that have been written about him. Now, that's obviously not something that you would write about in, in Three Ring Circus um, because you're focused on the Lakers and his career there. But, you know, with respect to his early life, it was a pretty big part of it and nobody had taken any time to dive into it. Is your first move when you're working on this book, get the Lower Marion uh, yearbook? That's one of the first ones. I spent hours at the Lower Marion Historical Society. They're stocked with stuff. And I spent hours there going through the yearbook I spent hours there going through back copies of the Marionite, the student newspaper um, from Lower Marion, which was essential 
to confirming details that people had given me in their interviews with me. So for example, there's an anecdote in the book about how Kobe would drive to Lower Marion High School really, really early in the morning to work out. He would have the janitor open the gym form at the school and you know he'd shoot for an hour. And he would park in one of the prime parking spots on campus, um, you know, a faculty member's lot, an administ- spot, an administrator's spot, something like that, which is pretty revealing in and of itself. Going through the old back copies of the student newspaper, I found a news story that pointed out that at the time there was construction going on in and around Lower Marion High School, which forced the closure of like three quarters of the parking spots on campus. So usually Lower Marion High School would have like 75 parking spots available. At the time, they only had 25. So they were that only adds a layer to like Kobe's brazenness of like, yeah, there's only 25 of these things and I'm taking one, damn it, because I'm, I'm Kobe Bryant. And that kind of research, you know, you, you that's the kind of stuff that you like you get excited about if you're doing reporting or research in a project like this. I feel like I'm staring at another complete and total nerd, which I <laughs> because I there's nothing better than opening like an old student newspaper that nobody's looked at in X number of years and finding some little nugget of gold. It's a freaking best. Yeah, yeah it is. And and that 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 was really thrilling and exciting and fun in the process was going back over the stuff that was 25, 30 years old. You know, there's kind of this dead spot in the internet where like, you know, you can't really, it's not easily, it's not easy to find some of those things, whether it's like Philadelphia Inquirer back issues from the mid 1990s, newspapers.com is great, but you know, I wasn't finding everything there. And th- that search was just so much fun. Libraries are the best. They are. They are when you awesome. wait, when you, I'm going to interrupt. When you go into the library, what library were you using mainly? Um, Temple University, I used quite a bit because they had back copies of the old Philadelphia Bulletin from the 70s, 60s and 70s. That allowed me to do a lot of research in Joe Bryant. I went to the Doylestown Library in my town. They had some stuff that was that was able to use. Philadelphia, you know, Free Library had some things. All right. So you're you're reporting on this book and you obviously you interviewed a shitload of people. Are you literally going through the yearbook and tracking down every person? Are you tracking down you see a, t- a club picture. Or are you just tracking down those people? Like how, how are you deciding who to call and how to, how to reach out to them? So I had an advantage in that right off the bat, I had two core members of kind of the Kobe group in high school, so to speak, who were cooperating with me. And that was Greg Downer, who was his high school coach and Jeremy Treatman, who was kind of his friend slash confidant slash assistant coach at Lower Marion slash media relations rep um, at that time. So once I had those two guys and they were helping me out, they opened the door to talk to other coaches and other teammates and word got out that I was looking to talk to people. Um, I only had a year to research the book. So I had to make some sacrifices and some choices in terms of who I was going to reach out to uh, and who I was going to try to talk to. And I know, I know you talk about this a lot, like you want to get the guy at the end of the bench in a way because he's experienced and seen everything that Michael Jordan has or Kobe Bryant has. And so why bother trying to get Kobe and Michael when you can get the guy at the end of the bench? His observations are just as valid and reliable. So I did a little bit of that. Like I didn't reach out to Mike Krzyzewski because I thought that's going to be a way I have a year and that's a waste of my time. So let me try to get Tommy Amaker. He didn't, he turned me down, but at least I tried. Um, I had other sources who could speak to Kobe's recruitment by Duke. Um, 
you know, and so that's kind of what you do. I didn't have Joe and Pam Bryant. Um, I reached out to them to try to speak to them. And I never heard back. I heard through intermediaries that they, you know, knew I was doing the book, but I never got to talk to them. So I had some choices to make about who I could talk to and how much time I would spend trying to track down certain people. You knew Downer already? Yes. Did you get sort of what you expected from him? I was kind of considered in many ways the key Kobe point man from that era. Did you get what you expected from him? I did. We would set up weekly interview sessions on his back porch slash deck, and we would socially distance and sit outside during the spring and summer of 2020. And we would talk for hours. And he, to me, was a fascinating figure and character because number one, he gets interviewed about Kobe all the time. And so I wanted to go into the project saying, I got to get something a little bit different from him. And nobody had ever written kind of his story. So it was important for me to make him a character in the book get into his background. How did he get into coaching? What points of connection did he have with Kobe? Uh, You know, he loved basketball himself. He was in a family situation and coming up through high school where there were some some points of similarity and connection there. And uh, and that was important to me to make sure that he came through as a three-dimensional figure in the course of the narrative. So when you interview someone who um, has been interviewed a gazillion times before about a figure, is it possible to get fresh material from him about Kobe? I think you have to push. You have to get granular. He describes a scene, for instance, in the state championship game, Kobe's senior year, where he said, you know, I I took my shoes off. We were down six at halftime. I needed to to inspire the team. So I took my dress shoes off and put on my sneakers and told the team, I'm wearing my sneakers for the second half so that when we win the game, I'm going to be ready to dance around and run around the gym and celebrate with all of you guys. So you ask him, well, what kind of sneakers? Oh, white Adidas. Okay. You know, blue stripes, whites, you know, and he had, he actually had a photograph of them. And then by asking that, he's giving me even more details about the locker room and that game. And all of a sudden I'm finding out like before that game, Jeremy Treatman had to go into the locker room stall, one of the bathroom stalls to pull Greg out because Greg was so nervous about the game and the prospect of them losing the state, getting all the way to the state championship game with Kobe Bryant and losing that he's there. I can't go out there. I can't go out there. And Jeremy's saying, you got to get out here. Come on, let's go. Um, And the, and and again, you know, this as well as anybody, you just kind of, kind of keep pulling on that thread for one detail after another, after another. And then eventually, you know, the dam kind of bursts. This is a super granular question, but um, you're interviewing someone and he's talking about, he put on his sneakers do you wait till he's done telling the story and say, what kind of sneakers were they? Or will you be like, wait, 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 just kind of curious real quick. What kind of sneakers are those? I generally try to wait, but I might write down on my notepad, ask about sneakers, um, follow up about sneakers, something like that. It's interesting to think of that in those terms with Greg, because Greg is, a, is the kind of guy who he'll talk and he has these natural pauses when he speaks. So oftentimes I would try to jump in with a question and he would continue finishing his thought. So I didn't want to trample on him or, or interrupt him in any regard. And I wanted to make sure that he was finished saying what he was saying. And then I would jump in. This may be a dumb question, but, um, you know, Kobe Bryant really sort of became this thing. And all these people who you're interviewing knew him mainly as an 18-year-old Kobe. And maybe they ran into him every now and then. But did they still feel the connective tissue to him in the way you would Jim, who's working at the bar now down the street or so-and-so? Or... Was he more this sort of golden lamp over there? And we're just retelling stories we remember about him. 
I was surprised by how much of a connection people still felt to him. They still, most of the people I spoke to from Lower Marion who were his classmates really regarded him as the kid who sat next to them in honors English class or the kid who, when the team bus was going over a bridge, would white knuckle the seat because he was afraid of heights and afraid of the body of, you know, falling into the body of water that they were going over. Um, they really viewed him that way. And I think that was a theme that I wanted to keep through the book was let's look at this as a moment in time. And for so many people in that community, that's how they view him. It's not just, he was the basketball star. He was the kid who, he was also the kid who liked rap music, the kid who showed up, you know, in eighth grade and ninth grade and was speaking Italian to his sisters in the hallway, because that was the language that they were most comfortable with at the time. The kid who was wearing European style clothing or dashiki or something like that. Um, that's how they hold him in, in their memories. And so, I, I, yeah, I didn't perceive that as being like, this is how we like to remember him. This, that's just how they look at him because he was just so much a part of the fabric of their four years at the school. When I wrote my book, a lot of the Laker players, I think they always felt he was a guy who was a little bit full of shit as far as he was always trying to put out how he wanted others to see him. Look, mm -hmm. I'm tough Kobe. I'm hard Kobe. I'm hip hop Kobe. I'm whatever Kobe I want to be this year. I'm going to be that guy. As a high school kid, was he just Kobe Bryant high school kid? Or could you see the development of that sort of mechanism? Could totally see the development of that mechanism. Totally. He didn't tell Greg Downer, his high school coach, that he was going straight to the NBA from high school. He never said it explicitly. You know, I think I have a line in the book that for, he went through a while kind of like trying on personalities like clothes. Um, you can definitely see that. You can see him... He can be hard and edgy. He can be soft and compassionate. And I even closed the book with an anecdote where I got to talk to him after a game in like 2007 in Philly. And he was still on his rehab tour after Aurora, Colorado. And I asked him, I'd heard a rumor that he was thinking about trying to finish his career with the Sixers. And I asked him about that. And he said, yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind that. In high school, it's all I thought about. And clearly in the moment, he was like weighing what I should say. And never mind the fact that in high school, he didn't really think about joining the Sixers. Like he wanted to be with the Lakers. He would have gone and played for the Sixers if they had made him the number one pick in the 96 draft. But it wasn't like he was dying to play, you know, to play for the same team that Dr. J or Charles Barkley did. Um, so, yeah, there's always going to be this mystery, I think, at the heart of Kobe about how much of what he would say and do at various points of his life was the genuine article and how much of it was calculation into is this what I should say because. It's what people want to hear. Is it advantageous to me? Um, you know, all those sorts of things. He was so thoughtful and calculating in that way that I think that that hedge is always going to be there. I walked away from my book having probably mixed feelings about him. Um, the Kobe of that era, the Laker era with the with Shaq, didn't love. The Kobe later, the Kobe who was the dad and, you know, 40 years old, admired and, and sort of seemed to like. When you walk away from this research, do you walk away feeling good about Kobe Bryant? Do you walk away feeling mixed about Kobe Bryant? A little bit of mixed. I just think he's incredibly, an incredibly complex figure. And I think that the way that we, as like a sports loving society, kind of look at and evaluate our athletic heroes plays into this a lot, right? And I point this out in the book. Like the difference between Kobe and Michael Jordan is that Jordan never really had to redeem himself from anything. He won six championships and six tries. The scandals during his player playing career, such as they were, 
were that he gambled too much, which a lot of people gambled too much. It made him almost more relatable. And the comment, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too, which made him too soulless and corporate and all that kind of stuff. Kobe traveled this natural redemptive arc, at least in our perception, right? He had everything. He lost it or came close to losing everything. And it was pretty much his fault. And then he pulled himself or we perceive that he pulled himself out of these depths. And I think that appeals to people in a deep, profound way. It doesn't even matter to a degree whether that was actually happening. We look at it that way. And so that when, when Kobe died, for instance, I think part of the sadness was, God, he had come so far and he had so much more to do. And now we don't get to see what that's going to be. Um, and we like stories like that. The thing I find confusing, and I still don't explain it very well, is Kobe Bryant dies. So I live out here in Southern California. Kobe Bryant dies. And it's like a, a head of state died, a really popular head of state died. And I was thinking like, I guess if Michael Jordan dies, you get that reaction. But if Vince Carter, Tracy McGrady, pick your guy, Chris Paul, any of those guys, it's just a really sad death. And there's something about Kobe. Maybe you understand it better than I do. Like there was something about him besides just that he died young that really hit people in the guts that I don't fully understand. I mean, if I had to guess, I'm not sure I would understand it either. If I had to guess, I think it would come back to what we talked about earlier about how he entered the NBA at age 17. So people felt like they watched him grow up. Young kid shooting the air balls against the Jazz in 97 to winning championships with Shaquille O'Neal and the Lakers and Phil Jackson and all of it. They followed it, you know, throughout their whole lives on a stage that someone like Tracy McGrady through no fault of his own didn't have. So I think that's probably part of it. And I also think the whole Mamba mentality thing, the way he approached the sport, the way he talked about the way he approached the sport that connected with people on a level that I'm not sure anything. Some of the other guys you mentioned have had. Did you have a year to write and report? Yes. Oh. I agreed to do the book in March of 2020, I think March or April. And I finished the first draft of the manuscript in March of 21. You have to be on crack. That's insane. <laughs> well, you know what, Jeff? And honest to God, um, and this is the, the, I've said this before, this is the worst thing I'm going to say in this podcast. The pandemic helped. Yeah. I couldn't go anywhere. Um, there were no sports for me to write about. I was kind of coming up with stuff. Um, the Inquirer moved me into a different role. Kind of, I wasn't a sports columnist anymore. I was more writing like features and things like that. So I wasn't writing as often for the paper and the website. So I had more time and people couldn't run away from me. So I could sit here and make phone calls or I could go to the Laura Marion Historical Society or meet Greg Downer or meet anybody for lunch if they were willing to. And I could just throw myself into it. So did you write and report at the same time? Yeah, I had to. And, uh, and once I got the, uh, we haven't even talked about these tapes that Jeremy Treatman gave me. Um, Jeremy and Kobe had tried to do a book back in the mid nineties and it, the project fell through, but Jeremy still had the transcripts of some of these interviews he, he had done with Kobe. Uh, so he gave me these transcripts, but he couldn't find the micro cassette tapes, the actual audio until three days before Christmas, 2020. 8.30 at night, December 22nd, 2020, I get a phone call and it's Jeremy who is cleaning out his garage in Philly because he's moving to Boca Raton. And he says, Mike, I found the tapes. And so the next morning I drove over to his house and we're in his garage and he hands over a giant Ziploc bag full of micro cassette tapes that are 25 years old that he's never heard, that nobody's ever heard before. 
And it's Kobe at 17, 18, 19 years old talking about the first time he met Michael Jordan, the state championship run with Lower Marion, his uh, relationships with his mother and father, the first time he met and his first reaction to Dell Harris, his first coach with the Lakers. And I have this and it's, it's December and my manuscript is due in March. So I've got to go through and listen to all these tapes and weave that detail and texture into the narrative. And, you know, thank God he found them. Wait, time out. How many tapes were there total? About 20. Okay. Do you send them out to get transcribed or do you just listen to them and type what you hear? I listened and transcribed as much as I could. I needed to hear his voice. I needed to, I needed to hear it. And how much of that were you able to use? I'd say about 15, 18% of it. Um, a lot of it was, you know, play by play details of games that really didn't factor much in. A lot of it is kind of rote cliches sort of stuff. But there were nuggets in there um, that I was able to to use and extract into the book um, that were really valuable. Uh, for example, he talks about meeting Michael Jordan for the first time. They met before a Sixers Bulls game in 1996 at the Spectrum. And Jordan lobbies him to go to North Carolina. Like, yeah, come on, you got to go to Carolina. You got to be a Tar Heel, blah, blah, blah. And Kobe says on these tapes, you know, I didn't have the heart to tell Michael that I was never going to go to North Carolina because as much as I admired Michael, I would never be my own man going there. I always would have been the guy who followed Michael. I wanted my own identity. It is crazy how he viewed himself as the next Jordan as a high school kid. And he actually was the next Jordan. Yeah. Like that's insane. It is. And, And to me, it was one of the more revealing parts about doing the research was the lengths that he would go to to prepare himself for that at such a young age, right? Like one of my favorite anecdotes in the book is he and a friend of his who was a a couple years older than him would drive around the playgrounds in and around Philly to play hoops, but they would play a very particular kind of basketball. Kobe would shoot and dunk and work on his footwork and fundamentals and the friend would rebound for him. The friend would also scream at him at Kobe's request. You're soft, you go to a white school, You're not black enough. You couldn't play in the Philadelphia Public League. And this was Kobe at 14 or 15, like thinking that he had to add this emotional armor to himself to get him to to be able to deal with what he was hearing from his peers on the court, what he was going to hear throughout his high school career, and even a little bit of what he was going to hear in the NBA. And I don't know, I think back to when I was 14 or 15, I didn't look at my future career that way, Um, but he did. And he made it happen, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's really remarkable. Maybe that actually is the answer to the question, why do people feel so sort of uh, in awe of Kobe Bryant? Maybe he just represented something. Yeah, he's the example of the guy who knew what he wanted to be at the earliest possible age, did everything he could to achieve that goal and achieved it. And so that gives everybody else hope that they can do it too. Was it sad writing the book? At times, yeah. The first chapter is kind of um, the aftermath of his death through the prism of Lower Marion. Um, And that could get sad at times, you know, listening to people talk about that and their reactions to what they were doing when the helicopter went down and all of that. And yeah, I mean, the the mere details and facts of the story are heartbreaking. It's one of the best opening chapters I've read in a long time. It's freaking ridiculously good. Yeah, you did a great job. I love the book. Seriously. I hope all 10 million of my listeners. (laughs) You're not the God's ears, man. Thanks. Yeah. Before we continue with Two Writers Thinking Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son Emmett, and I'm really thrilled you're back helping me do another ad for RoyalRetros.com, home to the best throwback sports apparel in the land. Wait, why are you here? I I live here. No, I mean, why aren't you at work? I, I don't really follow. Don't you roll falafel balls at Mr. Gyro down on Sunset? 
What? Oh, never mind. I never see you making a buck off this podcast, so I figured you got a real job making gyros or something. No, I'm a, I'm a sports writer. Right. Sure you are, Mr. Gyro. Wait, I want to ask you. So you, um, you've been at the Inquirer for a long time now, and um, someone asked me this the other day, and I thought, well, I got a guy here to ask. Does the modern sports newspaper columnist matter in the same way Bill Lyon, to use a local example, mattered 20 years ago? Like, do, is the impact still there or has it changed? I think it's changed. I think it's not what it once was, but I think there's still value in it. You know, I think somebody like a Dan Shaughnessy or a Bill Plaschke or a Jerry Brewer in Washington or somebody like that, you know, Sally Jenkins can really have an impact. You know, it doesn't matter as much because everybody has an opinion now. You see it on Twitter all the time, talk radio, blogs, podcasts, all of that stuff. But my feeling is that I know the Philadelphia market and the region and the sports history here really, really well. And that's kind of my hook, you know, in the way Mike Vaccaro is essential reading in New York and the po- at the Post. I want to be essential reading for people in Philadelphia, not because I'm going to write a hot take or, you know, you know, go off on this guy or that guy, but because I'm try to do the work, I try to report my columns fully, think about them deeply, and then present them in a way where people will go, oh, okay, that's pretty smart, or that's something I hadn't thought about before, and or he's right, and the fact that he said it gives it credence. Um, are we what we once were? Probably not, but I still wouldn't want any other job in the world. Well, you wrote a lead that I really loved. It was after the Eagles played the Redskins. Your lead was, there are a few unwritten rules of sports column writing. The first, and maybe the most important, is before you do anything, ask the beat reporter what he or she is writing. Beat writers work much harder than the columnists, and they tend to be grumpy. You would too. So it's smart and right to pay them respect. The second rule is one that varies slightly depending on the sport you're covering, but it can loosely be called the when in doubt rule. That is, If there isn't an obvious angle or take, write about the player or position or figure who factors most prominently in the game's outcome or who demands and generates the most interest. Hockey, when in doubt, write the goalie. Baseball, when in doubt, write the starting pitcher. Write A-Rod. Basketball, when in doubt, write Allen Iverson. Write LeBron. Write Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. And in football, when you're in doubt, you write the quarterback. Except that rule doesn't apply to the 2021 Eagles because their quarterback is not their quarterback. I love letting readers inside, like what enters your head? You're sitting there, you have a column due, you're covering a game, you got to write off of it. Are you throughout the game thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to write? Or do you sometimes have, all right, it's fourth quarter, there's one one minute left, bam, I got to write this. I mean, I'm thinking about it all during the course of the game, but I'm thinking about it in in terms of what are my coworkers and colleagues also going to write about too. Um, I'm very cognizant of not trying to Bigfoot anybody. Um, I'm not somebody who comes, you know, down to my you know, the three beat writers we have covering the Eagles who do a great job. I'm not going to come down there and pound the table and say, I'm writing X and that's it. I I don't do that. And I don't like people who do that. So um, I'm thinking as much as I can about what I'm going to write and how I'm going to write it. And I've, I've taken that approach that you just described more and more lately. Part of the reason is we don't have the access we used to have. I mean, I loved and relied on access to write my columns. Um, Harvey Arrington, who wrote for the Times for years and years, still does, Hall of Fame basketball writer, used the phrase that he liked people to walk around in his columns. And I very much subscribe to that. Um, but now I'm more and more letting people kind of like walk around in my own head as to like how I'm going about doing this and um, letting them into my thinking and the thought process more than trying to portray what's happening in front of me on the field or in the locker room because those opportunities are fewer and farther between now. Do you feel like the quality of your columns has been impacted by the reduction of access? 
For me personally, yes, I miss access a lot. And I want these, I've, I wrote a column last year saying this or 2020, like, let's go back to this because it's not my job to pump up the leagues, but I like telling stories. I like having the access to ask these guys questions. Um, it makes for better journalism. It makes for better writing and reporting and relationships between the people you cover and the people who are covering them. Um, and so, yeah, I miss it. And I feel, I do feel like I'm missing out on something by not being able to sidle up to somebody in a locker room and say, Hey, I got a quick question for you and getting something nobody else has and being able to weave that into one of my pieces. I never really thought about this until you kind of alluded to it. Does Twitter, does it blunt the force of a really good columnist? If everyone has an opinion and everyone can put their opinions out there and two seconds after an Eagles game, Jalen Hurts sucks, Jalen Hurts game, blah, blah, blah. Does it reduce the impact sports columnists have? I think it can if the sports columnist allows it to. I think you have to pick your spots. It's like anything else, right? What effect does Skip Bayless or Stephen A. Smith reacting strongly to something have? That's what they do. That's what their job is. And that's why they're paid. So when I see, oh, you know, Skip Bayless was ranting about X, it's like, well, okay, that's what he's supposed to do. That's, you know, what's what's the impact? But if I am somebody who doesn't rant or doesn't write a hot take or doesn't write these kind of fist pounding columns all the time, and then I write one when I really feel strongly about something, then it has more impact. Um you know, just in general, you know, I don't know that it's just Twitter. I think it's just a matter of like, there are so many loud voices out there now um, because there's so many other avenues and outlets for people to be loud that, uh, yeah, it probably does mute the, you know, soften the voice of a columnist, but that's okay. I generally, I'm not trying to shout. I'm generally trying to make people think. Do you ever feel compelled to go on Twitter and be like, God, blah, 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 sucks or blah, 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 sucks. Or do you view that as antithesis to what you do? I used to make a lot of really dumb jokes. Um, I, I wouldn't do that. So-and-so sucks. But I would do this thing where I would offer what I thought was a really outlandish opinion. And then at the end of it, put my column colon and then have nothing there so that people would think like, I would get people responding like, how can he write this? How can he write this column? And it's like, well, there is no column. There's no link. Look, look, at, look at what I wrote, you know, that, um, you know, Gosh, Patrick Mahomes is just the worst quarterback ever. My column, colon. And I would tweet that out just to like laugh at the outrage that it would generate over something that I hadn't written. Uh -huh. And I stopped doing that because I found it was counterproductive. Um, it stopped being funny. You know, people looked at me as a smart ass and those sorts of things. And so I just, I kind of put it aside. But to answer your question, like I try very hard not to like go off on Twitter on anything. I just kind of bite my lip and say, you know what? You're going to regret this. Put it in your back pocket. Uh, let me ask you a last question. You have you've listened to this podcast, apparently. What's the best confrontation from your career? Oh, God. Well, I mean, if you Google me, it'll come right up. Back last season, Jake Voracek of the Flyers called me on a Zoom call, on a Zoom press conference when we still weren't allowed to be in the presence of the athletes, um, called me an effing weasel during a press conference for something that I had written a year before. Mike Sielski, you're on. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, this question is for Jake. Um, two games in, Jake, how different does the season feel, if at all, given the circumstances of the offseason and the condensed schedule and everything? Doesn't matter what I say, Mike. You're going to write fucking shit every time. So it doesn't matter what you say. Uh, yeah, it feels different. I mean, we got four points out of the first two games. Uh, 
I, I wasn't even going to answer your question because you are such a weasel. It's not even funny. The, the frustrating part about it was I was on Zoom. So I asked the question and I was taken off of Zoom. I couldn't respond. And he, he uses this term to describe me and it goes viral. The New York Post does a story about it. I've got all these Flyers fans and hockey fans who are weighing in saying, yeah, Jake, way to take it to the media, that sort of thing. And the, the irony was what I wrote about Jake a year and a half earlier was correct. And he just didn't like the fact that I wrote it. And I'd always had a really good relationship with him. But on that one day, I caught him on a bad day, I guess. Wait, so what does that feel like when you're sitting there and you're called a fucking weasel on a Zoom press conference? What, what, what can you do? You just I was sitting here in my office just like I am now. And uh, I got a text message right away from the Flyers PR guy. Uh, Zach Hill, who said, what the hell was that? And I said, I'd like to know. <laughs> and, um, you know, I ended up talking to the Flyers and trying to arrange. I said, if Jake wants to talk to me about what I wrote or what he said, I'm here. And he never did. So I'm not worrying about it, Jeff. I mean, it's, you know, it was the kind of thing that if it had happened, if it had been three years earlier, four years earlier, five years earlier, it had happened in the locker room. We'd have talked it out like a couple of grown men. At least I, I would have tried to talk it out like a grown man. And nobody would have been any worse for wear. So it's the world we live in now. This was on, It wasn't just on Zoom. It was on TV in the Philadelphia area because every post-game press conference of every Flyers or Sixers or Eagles or Phillies game is shown everywhere in the Delaware Valley. So that helped spread the word, so to speak. And it was what it was. It's, it's happened to a lot of other people. It'll probably happen to me again. And that's okay. My job isn't to tell people what they want to hear. My job is to write what I think and to try to make people think and ground it in reality. And I did that with Jake Voracek. And if he didn't like it, oh, well. It's two years from now or whatever, a year from now, locker rooms are open again and the Columbus Blue Jackets come to Philly and you're whatever at a hockey game. Do you go up to him? I probably would. Yeah. I would probably go up and introduce and not introduce myself. He knows who I am, obviously, but I would say, Hey Jake, has the hatchet been buried yet or what? If not, it's not, then that's fine. Um, but you know, I, I don't spend a whole, honestly, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it anymore. I've got, I've had this book on the brain for the last two years. Well, I just want you to know, I also think you're a fucking weasel. And if I, no, <laughs> I appreciate that. This, that I'm, I'm two for two now. This is great. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a badge of honor to me. That's a really good. Um, well, listen, the book is so good and uh, I feel like it's going to end up on a bunch of, you know, best of lists for the end of the year and it's going to get its due. And I, I just think it's a marvelous, marvelous work. And you really put your put your effort into it and just it kicks ass. So I hope Thank you feel you. a lot of pride in it. I, re I really do. Thank you so much. It's really kind of you to say. I appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Mike Sioski, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging the Yank. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Sioski and purchase The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and The Pursuit of Immortality wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging the Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast and rely on word of mouth. Also, check out my free weekly writing substack at perlman.substack.com. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.